This is an audio sermon recorded at the Church of Christ at Johnson Mill in Fayetteville, Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth according to the New Testament. Come worship with us Sunday mornings at 1030 at 3801 Johnson Mill Boulevard. This morning we're going to study a story in, in, in the book of Numbers. And we'll be in Numbers chapter 22 and we'll just kind of go through that, that story and read some verses as we talk about uh, this subject this morning. Um, you know, when, when God was leading about his people right after they came out of Exodus, or the, the, the Exodus happened right after they came out of Egypt, rather, uh, he led them about through the wilderness and was leading them on to the land of promise. And there's a lot of, of, of visual uh, similarities. There's a lot of, of, of similarities in that story about how God is leading us to the land of promise, which is heaven. And along the way, there's battles that we face, and there's, there's enemies that would be against us, and there's temptations that would draw us away, and, and there's desires that would pull us away from God. And, and so there's a lot of parallels when we read about the things that are happening with the children of Israel and, and really our own lives and our own walk. But as they went along, God would help them against their enemies and would fight with them and for them, and he would continually protect them and give them victory to help them achieve the blessings he had promised. Uh, even when the Israelites tried to uh, keep themselves from those blessings, God would bring them back to obedience. And, and oftentimes the way he would do that was by letting a nation come in and destroy them. And, and when they were in a time of great need, then they would come back to God and they, would, they just kind of went back and forth that way throughout their history. And so it's kind of during this time when they're wandering around through the wilderness that we come to this story in Numbers chapter 22. And in this story, there is a king named Balak. And in verse 3, we read, and the king uh, and Moab was sore afraid of the people because they were many, and Moab was distressed because of the children of Israel. You see, the, the Israelites had, in Egypt, in their time in, e- in Egypt, had grown to a, a vast multitude, fulfilling the promise that God had made to Abraham. He said, I'm going to, from you would come this nation, and I'm going to multiply your seed, and they would be innumerable as the stars of heaven and as the sand of the sea. And so they were just a, a, in millions in number. Uh, the, the Israelites that came out of Egypt. And as they went about, the nations were afraid because they heard about what God did to the Egyptians on behalf of the Israelites and that he would do uh, against these other nations that would rise up against them. And so the other countries around were afraid. And so they come near to this king, Moab, and he was sore afraid of the people because they were many and he was distressed and he uh, had to figure out what to do. And so he gets his plan together. He gets to, to the people of the land. He comes to the Midianites and joins forces with them and says, let's do something about this. I know a man who can probably help us. His name is Balaam. Balaam was a well-known soothsayer. And, and in those times, there was a, a soothsayer was somewhat of a sorcerer, a magician, somebody who used uh, evil things that God forbade uh, to communicate. And, and But in the good sense, sometimes a soothsayer was simply a prophet uh, that, would, that would communicate with God. And so Balaam was one of these men. Uh, he, would, he would communicate with God, and, and God would tell him and give him direction. And that's what we're going to see in, as, in the story. If you read the rest of the story, God comes to him several times and, and prophesies through him. But they go to him. And it says in verse 7 that the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian, these two nations, gather together and they depart with the rewards of divination in their hand, meaning the fee. They paid a diviner's fee. They paid this man. They, they brought money to this guy and said, we're going to pay him. We're going to hire this man to help us. And they came to Balaam and spake to him the words of Balak. And Balak sent word to him and said, help me and curse these people. 
curse these Israelites that, that came out and, and help me to defeat them. There's no way that I can win this on my own. I need your help, and so help me to curse them. So they come and hire Balaam, and Balaam asks for permission. He says, okay. The men that come, he says, you wait here. Stay with me this night. Stay here. I'm going to go off into this other place, and I'm going to see if the Lord will talk to me and, and let me know what to do. So he does that. And this was God's response to him. And God said to Balaam, Thou shalt not go with them. Thou shalt not curse the people, for they are blessed. And Balaam rose up in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, Get you to your land, for the Lord refuses to give me leave to go with you. It's kind of an interesting thing in this story that Balaam would repeatedly go and ask God what to do. And he would carry that out. And he would say, No, God said no. God... God told me I can't curse these people. They're blessed, so I'm not going to do it. And Balak presses him and presses him, and Balaam continually does this. And it comes off as if Balaam's a good man, but really he's not. He is really covetous. He really wants that money. He really wants that reward. And, and the scriptures reveal that to us, and we'll look at some of that a little bit later uh, to prove that. I'm not just going to assert that, but we'll prove that with the scriptures. Uh, but he asks for permission this first time. He's denied. And so then Balak sends even more people. He ups the ante and, and makes the prize even better. And he goes to him and he, he sends a larger group of, of more noble princes. It says in verse 15 and 17, it says, Balak sent yet again princes more and more honorable than they. So he sends this great company, more respectable men that he can go to and persuade to come and do this. And he says, they came to Balaam and they said, thus saith Balak, the son of Zippor, let nothing, I pray thee, hinder thee from coming to me. For I will promote thee unto very great honor, and I will do whatsoever thou sayest to me. Come, therefore, I pray thee, curse me this people. He's just begging. He's desperate. He is so distressed by this, this company of Israelites that he's willing to do anything. He says, come to me. I'll give you whatever you want. I'll do whatever you want. Don't let anything get in your way. Just come and, and let me hire you to do this thing. And so what we see in the story is that Balaam, again, gets direction from God, and God tells him, don't. Don't do it. And don't go with them. In fact, he says, don't go with these men unless they come and call you again. Don't go with them. But he says, even if you do, if they come and call you and you go with them, you're only going to say what I tell you to say, and you're only going to do what I tell you to do. And Balaam sees that as his opportunity to just go ahead and go. And so he rises up in the morning and he immediately goes. He didn't wait and follow God's instruction. And God was displeased with him for that. Uh, you know, he was very eager to go with them. And God was angry for him. And, and if you're familiar with the story of Balaam's donkey, where the donkey would refuse to go, uh, this is where that happens. He, he, he packs up his mule, his donkey, and he goes out. And uh, the donkey refuses to go any further because it sees the angel of the Lord standing in the way with the sword in his hand. And he's going to kill Balaam. And the donkey's trying to save him. But he keeps getting mad and he, he hits this donkey several times. And uh, then God opens the mouth of the donkey, and the donkey speaks and says, Why are you hitting me? I've been a faithful servant to you all this time. Why are you doing this? And, and then the angel of the Lord reveals himself to Balaam, and Balaam sees he was wrong, and this angel was going to kill him for going with these men. And he says, Nevertheless, go, but you're only going to do what I tell you to say and to do. So this man, Balaam, had a very... He, he was really excited about this, this reward that Balak was trying to give him. But God was getting in his way and wouldn't let him uh, take a hold of that. 
so Balak tries to, once Balaam goes and, and meets this Moab uh, king, Balak, he tries to take him to three different high places, the, the, the prophets or the, of the uh, idols of Baal. And they're, they're made up in these really high places. And he says, come, come up here with me and you'll get a good perspective on this people and you'll see how innumerable they are. You'll see how large they are and surely God will let you curse them. And so they go up to this high place. He, he has Balak create these seven altars and then they, they sacrifice a bullock and a ram on each of these altars. And he says, wait here by your sacrifice. I'm going to go talk to the Lord and find out what he says. Of course, we know the answer is it's no, you, you cannot curse these people. They are my people. They are blessed. So he does that. Balak gets mad at him. He says, okay, maybe I'll show you another part. We can't see all of the company, but we'll only see just a little bit of that company and just curse me that portion of the people. And, and, and that will help me enough in this battle against them. So he goes to the next high place and they do that and they see that. They make their, their altars, their seven altars, and they make their sacrifices. And Balak, or Balaam goes over and talks to God. And God says no. And he gives this beautiful... It's really interesting, this evil man, and God uses him, and he says these very beautiful prophecies about the children of Israel and foretells of this great king, this mighty king that would raise up and would, would vanquish the enemies. It's a very moving prophecies that he gives. But he sees the people, and he says these things, and Balak gets angry with him. He says, I've paid you to come and curse these people, and you're not doing your job. And he gets angry with him. He says, I'm going to go take you to one more place, and surely... Surely, if we go to this third place and we go up into this mountain and we do these things, that God is going to let you curse these people for me and help me win. So he takes him up to the third place. Same thing. This time, Balaam doesn't even go and, and, and tell him to stay here by your sacrifice. I'm going to go off over here and talk to God. He doesn't even do that. He just goes over to the edge, it says, and he sees the tents of the people and he says, he gives this great, beautiful prophecy about the children of Israel and how they're, how they're blessed and how there's, there's no thing against them. There's no uh, people that can rise up against them because God is with them. And, and he, he gives this very beautiful words. And Balak gets just angry with him. He says, what? He, he just is super annoyed and frustrated and angry because they've spent all this time and he's not getting what he wants. And in Numbers chapter 24, by the time we get towards the end of that story, we see Balaam, or Balak, what he says to this prophet. He says, And Balak's anger was kindled against Balaam, and he smote his hands together. And, and Balak said to Balaam, I called thee to curse mine enemies, and behold, thou hast altogether blessed him these three times. Therefore now flee unto thy place, for I thought to promote thee unto great honor. But lo, the Lord hath kept thee back from honor. And as we think about what's happening in this story, what Balak's trying to get Balaam to do, even though Balaam is a, a wicked man and covetous and wants that, he wants that reward, and he keeps trying to find a way to go, what, that's what we're seeing here. God tells him no, but he keeps trying to find a way to get there and get what he wants. We can still learn something very valuable from this story that, that helps us. And what we see here in this passage is the greatest lie that has ever been sold to humanity. The Lord has kept you back from honor. God is holding you back. You could be very wealthy. Oh, you could be very respected, very popular. 
You can have all your desires fulfilled. You can have everything you ever wanted. As long as you don't let God get in the way. And that's what Balak is telling to Balaam. You are going to miss out on these things. That's going to make your life way better. Because you've chosen to follow God. You've chosen to do and say what God has commanded. You're letting him limit you. You know, that's the exact lie that Satan used in the garden. The exact lie that, that Satan said to Adam and Eve. God knows. He knows that if you eat this fruit, that you will gain power. And he doesn't want you to have that. You'll be like God's. But God's holding you back. And it's the exact lie that Satan uses to make us fall. God is holding you back. You could be much greater, so long as you don't let God get in your way. <clears throat> now, as followers, there's great need for us to have a proper perspective, and that's what, this, that's what the rest of the sermon is about, is for us to, to consider the proper perspective we ought to have. Worldly values versus godly values. The things that God truly honors and values versus what the world truly honors and values. Because that's what honor is. It's something, if you look at the definitions for the word honor, it talks about something that is weight, that has weight. And, and you think about it as a measure of what they use for the materials like gold and silver. The more weight it had, the more gold you had, the more money you had, the more value it has. And so, so what we value is the things that we really care about, the things that we're really attached to, the things we really desire that we think are worth a lot. And there is a difference between what the world tells us we should put a lot of value on and what God tells us we should put a lot of value on. And so there's these two competing ideas about what we should value. And, and the Bible is very clear about the, the kind of perspective we ought to have. And this isn't something negative. This is something positive. This is something we should be excited to learn about and, and be able to... to Renew our mind, as we talked about transformation the last time that I spoke. Renewing our minds in the way that God wants us to see the world, and not in the way the world wants us to see the world. So the first thing that we'll examine is the phrase that Balak told to Balaam. I thought to promote thee to great honor. Here is this earthly king, wealthy, no doubt, and he says, I was going to promote you to great honor. I have all the power and ability to give you everything you want and to lift you up high and to promote you to great honor. That's what I was going to do. Maybe he was going to get a lot of money. Maybe he was going to get a high position among the king's court. Maybe he was going to get a lot of respect. Be a well-respected man in, the, in, his, in their kingdom. And I think he got what he wanted. Because the story does go on and and, and we know what the scriptures teach in that Balaam helped them. Even though he was told not to, he eventually helped them. And we'll see at the end of the sermon, we'll, we'll tie the story back up together. And, and we'll, we'll see what happens to Balaam. He goes after that, but he finds another way around it. He doesn't directly curse them, but what he does is tells Balak what he can do the kinds of sins that he can involve those people in that will cause them to fall and make God angry with them and God will kill him for him. That's what he tells them. Uh, very sad. So he got what he wanted. 
But there is a difference between worldly value and godly value. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If, if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away, and the lust thereof. And he that doeth the will of, of, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. And it's hard for us to hear the, these things sometimes, and, and sometimes repeatedly we have to hear these types of things because we live in this world. What are we supposed to do? It's, it's a hard challenge. It's a hard struggle. But that's where the Bible calls us to, to live in the world, and we have to live among those people of the world, but not to become consumed by the things of this world the way that the, the, the ungodly people are. We need to have our perspective anchored in reality, and the reality is that the world is going to pass away, and everything we think is of high value in this world is fleeting. It's not stable. It will deteriorate. It is not going to be a solid foundation for you to build your life on. It's going to pass away. But if we do the will of God, we will abide forever. That's the, think about the parable that Jesus gave about building your house on the sand or building your house on the rock. If we pursue the things of the world, we're building our house on sand. And when the trials come, we're not going to have a solid foundation. We're easily going to be toppled over, and our life will be in ruin. But if we build it on the Word of God and build our life up and build our character up and build our values up on the Word of God, then we'll be able to withstand everything because God will be with us. Rather, we would be with God. So there's a stark contrast to the values of the world and what God values. And Jesus actually rebuked the Pharisees for this. The Pharisees were people who had a very high premium on the way they looked religiously. They wanted to look very religious. They wanted to be very well respected among people. And so they did all kinds of things to make themselves more prominent. You know, they would wear these robes and they would broaden the borders of their garments because the, the wider their border was, the more religious they, they came off as. People, oh man, they must be really holy. Look at those garments. Or their phylactery boxes, they would enlarge in them. That's boxes that contained scriptures in them. They would make them really big. It's like, it's like if you carried around a Bible and you go and find the largest Bible you can carry, it's like, look how religious I am because I'm carrying this giant Bible around. That's kind of what they were doing with their clothes and, and, and with their symbols and their signs that they were doing. And they had an outward appearance and it was very beautiful, Jesus said. But inside they were filled with dead men's bones. They were empty on the inside. In Luke chapter 16, verse 13 and 15, 13 through 15 rather, it says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he'll hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And the Pharisees, who were covetous, heard all these things, and they derided him. Oh, come on, Jesus. Come off it. Really. You're telling me I can't have money? Telling me I can't have some wealth? Come on. Really? And so they deride him. And he said to them, You are they which justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. The things that are valued among men don't really hold that much weight in the sight of God. Pharisees put a high premium on being this religion, and they were using their religion to take advantage of people and build up their wealth. They were taking advantage of widows. They were taking advantage of the poor. 
And they thought that was going to, that made them more prominent. And they thought that was good. But Jesus says, what you think is good is, is really not that good. It's not highly esteemed. It's abomination in the sight of God, rather. And so when we look at examples like this, we see that God does not see things the way we do. He is not a man. And, and he is not a, a, a human person. We are limited and blinded by our human perspective. And we see and desire what's here and what's now, what we can see right in front of us, what we, what we can experience right now in the short term. And we get emotionally attached to things and we get uh, uh, emotionally connected to things. And we let that pull us away. Family, friends, work, entertainment. Well, there's a lot of stuff to, to distract us. And we forget to see beyond this life to the greater value that lies ahead. And I know that's hard because we don't see those things. We hear about those things and we have evidence from the scriptures that God is who he says he is, that Jesus was who he says he was, that he did the things that he said that the Bible tells us he did. He, he did those miracles, healed the blind and caused the lame to walk again and raised the dead. Jesus did those things because he is the son of God and he was resurrected from the dead himself. And we have eyewitness accounts that give us uh, confidence, that give us faith. But it's hard because we don't see, sometimes, we don't see immediate tangibles by living a godly life sometimes. And, and really, sometimes when we start living a godly life, the Bible says, if you live in righteousness, you will receive persecution. And so that makes it difficult. So I know it's hard. I'm not... I'm not picking on any person here, of course, uh, but this is all just good general information for us to, to be reminded of, to renew our minds, to have the proper perspective. Jesus, again, rebuked the Pharisees because their value system was not aligned with the world, or with God, rather. It was aligned with the world. In John chapter 5, verse 44, he asked them this question, very poignant question. How can you believe which receive honor one of another and seek not the honor that cometh from God only? What a question. How can you even be a believer in God if you're so consumed with seeking honor from each other? If we're just living to be prominent among our peers, among our family, among our coworkers, among our friends, that's a misalignment of, of value systems. We should instead seek the honor that comes from God only. So, you know, so that made me really think, you know, who is it that decided that we should bestow great, great honor, high honors? We place a very high premium on how patriotic people are for our country. Now, don't get me wrong. I love this country. But it's not the end-all, be-all. What about our states? Some people are attached. State pride is a real thing. Our cities, some people, oh, I live in this city, so I'm very prominent. Maybe the, the neighborhood you live in amongst the city. I live in the, gr in the good neighborhood, and that makes us feel good. Maybe it's the kind of family we come from or how good our family is. Oh, my family, I, they're so great. Maybe it's the kind of home you live in. Wow, that's a really nice house that you live in. Maybe it's the kind of car you drive. Wow, you drive that? That's a brand new car. You must be doing really well. The kind of stuff you have, the kind of money, or how much money you have, the career you have. Careers are highly valued. Even how we look. 
People were consumed with their looks. People were consumed with their with with all types of things. And and there's there's all kinds of horrible things that happen because people were consumed with their looks. And and we see a lot of uh, even suicides because of that. It's, it's very sad. And the list goes on and on and on. We could name all types of earthly things, all types of things that, that, that people hold dear. But you know who decided that those things were valuable? Humans did. People did. God didn't decide that those things were the most valuable. It was people. And, and these things somehow have become status symbols that people hold dear. And they measure themselves by it, and they measure other people by it. And we do that. And, and what we need to realize is that we should ask ourselves, is our value system, the thing that we measure ourselves by and other people by, is it properly aligned with what God measures people by and what God uh, measures us by? Because He measures us by His Word. He measures us by godliness, by righteousness, by, by, by love, by hope, by faith, by charity, by virtue. Not the things that the world values and measures us by. And so we need to have a proper perspective, get that in our heads, and, and let that be what anchors us to, to reality, that the things of this world, although they give us immediate pleasure sometimes, they are not as good as what God has for us. Hebrews 11 offers a lot of examples of people that looked ahead to, the, to uh, they, they looked past this life, and they had a proper spiritual values, like Moses. And Moses was a com- contemporary of Balaam, and that's what I find so interesting about this. Balaam was a covetous man who took advantage of this opportunity and kept trying and trying and trying to get gain and get worldliness and get, God, you know, get power and wealth and all these things. Moses, on the other hand, had, a, had instant access to wealth and riches and honor, but he chose not to follow that. Hebrews eleven twenty four says, By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he had respect to the recompense of the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. You see, Moses was looking ahead to something different and something better. A lot of people might look at Moses and say, Moses, you're crazy. You gave up all of that wealth and all that comfort so that you could go and suffer in the desert with the people of God. But Moses had respect to the recompense of the reward. He realized the the trade-off. He realized the value. And he realized what he was gaining was far better than what Egypt could ever offer. And so he forsook Egypt, and he endured. What an incredible contrast to Balaam. Every opportunity to be raised up as Egyptian royalty, and yet he understood where greater honor was, and he forsook Egypt, and rather than Balaam, who ran greedily after the reward, as the Scripture says. And so the problem that we see that the Scripture highlights over and over again is that the world, what the world values is ultimately going to fade away. Those riches that Moses had access to in Egypt... Where are they now? Gone. Those palaces, destroyed. But where is Moses now? He's in a place experiencing great joy, in a place of comfort, in the bosom of Abraham. 
resting in some place that is eternal that will never fade away. And that is amazing to think about. What God highly esteems, that's what is eternal. In 1 Peter 1, 18-25, we get an, an idea and a picture of what it is that God esteems that is of great eternal value. He says, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold, Corruptible things means something that is perishing, something that is fading away, something that will not last. You were not, your soul was not paid for and redeemed by silver and by gold. It was not. We were not redeemed from our vain conversation received by tradition from our fathers, but it was redeemed by the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these times, last, in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and your hope might be in God, seeing you have purified your souls and obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. See that you love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass and, all, and the glory... All the glory of man is as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. The word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word by which the gospel is preached unto you. Look at that, how it compares the glory of man to a fading flower. You know, interestingly, there was a flower here set on this desk when we came in. I'm glad it was here so I can use this visual here. This flower was separated from its, from its stem and from its root. And it's just going to fade away. You can already see some of the leaves dying. It won't take long. This thing is dead. It looks alive, but it's dead. That's the glory of man. It looks real, it looks real pretty for a short time. And it just dies. It fades away and it'll become nothing. That's everything that we value in this world. What is highly esteemed among men is just like this flower. It, oh, it sure, look, it sure looks beautiful. It's going to fade away. All flesh is as grass, and the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falleth away. But the word of the Lord endures forever. This is of eternal weight. This is of eternal glory. The things of true value that we see in this, it's not money, it's not wealth, not position, not power, not career, not family, not friends, not enjoyment, not pleasures, but we see is the precious blood of Christ, His resurrection, God's Word, our faith, our souls, our spiritual rebirth, love, our Christian family, the hope of being raised up to an incorruptible reward. Everything else is going to pass away but not these things. And what a blessing that is that the Bible gives us the perspective to, to be rooted in, in reality. God wants us to realize that, uh, that these are the things we should pursue. And the second thing we'll talk about is the fact that, Balaam, or that Balak pressed Balaam. Balaam said, no, I can't do this. And so he sends even more princes. He sends even more honorable people and, and more money to try to persuade him to come. And you know what he says? Don't let anything get in your way. Let nothing hinder you. In order to pursue and gain the honor of, of the world, 
we are encouraged constantly to not let anything get in our way. Sacrifice everything you have to in order to gain what you value, in order to gain what you think is worth it. That's going to bring a sense of honor in your life. You know, and sometimes, sometimes that looks like time not being a factor. And all of a sudden, we have all the time in the world to binge watch shows online, playing games, video games. We have all the time in the world to go on on all sorts of vacations, attending sporting events, hunting and fishing. Man, people, sometimes we, we don't even consider time as a factor. And we say, yeah, we can do that. And we get sucked into that. But how many Christians don't have time to devote to studying the Bible? Or to just spending time with other Christians? Or even just praying? I felt that way at times. I feel so busy that I don't have time to just stop and pray. But I won't think twice about sitting there scrolling along online. And I I say, I don't have time. (laughs) We do have time. We sacrifice it, though. We don't let anything get in our way to get what we want. And what about marriage? What about our marriages? Some people do not let marriage get in their way of pursuing physical desires. Maybe seeking undue attention from somebody. Maybe, Maybe they won't even let their marriage get in the way of having an extramarital relationship and they'll find somebody to go and and commit adultery with. But somehow, there's a lot of marriages that are fractured because a husband and wife just fall out of love, quote-unquote. Or because there's pornography addictions. Or because they've committed adultery. Sometimes it looks like sacrificing family. You know, I just don't have time to spend with my kids. I don't have time to spend with my wife because I have money to make. I got a promotion to pursue and that makes me have self-worth. Or maybe it's even a hobby. But then we look at the other side and how many families are there that are spiritually weak because of an attitude like that? Maybe sometimes it's forsaking our church family so that we don't lose our connection with our earthly family. Our peer groups, our coworkers. No, I can't go there. I can't go to that Bible study. I can't go to that service. I can't go to that church meeting. I can't go to that singing because oh, I've got stuff to do with my family and my friends. They're not going to like it if I don't if I go with them. But then how many congregations of the church are fractured or dying because there's nobody that has genuine interest in each other's lives? And I'm not saying that's the reality here, but I've seen that. Seen that in, in, in congregations. It's sad. Sometimes it's energy and abilities to, to gain mastery of a skill. Some people pour themselves into learning how to do a sport. Catching a football, catching a baseball, shooting a basketball. They'll spend time and time and time and time practicing and honing that skill, really getting good at it. Maybe it's an instrument. I'm learning how to play the guitar, so I'm going to spend all this time doing this. I'm learning how to play the piano, so I'm doing all this. Maybe it's our jobs. I'm really going to get better at this skill and sharpen this. But then we look around and we say, how many congregations are there 
that are weak and sickly because men don't step up and learn how to get better at the spiritual skills that we need. Singing, teaching, praying. And not just men, but women too. Mastering spiritual skills like studying the scriptures, sharing that with people. We just don't approach it with the same enthusiasm. We get all excited about this other stuff, but somehow when it comes to spiritual things, yeah. And, and I think we have to ask ourselves and be honest, how much damage are we causing to ourselves? How much damage are we causing to our brethren because we don't learn to see the spiritual value that God sees and, and, and we don't start to make the, the appropriate sacrifices that are actually worth making? Because all of it is a trade-off. And I'm not saying that all of the things, or a lot of the things that I mentioned, are evil somehow. It's good to spend time with family. It's good to go on vacations. It's good to have, have some, some fun together. It's good to spend time learning how to, to have a skill and a craft and, and to, to earn money to take care of our families. These are good, those are good things. But they can become evil if our value system is misaligned and we place great honor on these things and we'll give everything and nothing get in our way to pursue all of these things. Something is always sacrificed in pursuit of what we value. Always. And we just have to consider what we're sacrificing. That's the, the, the point that I'm trying to get across here. Uh, you know, just as an example, Paul used the love of money, but it can be applied in many ways. First Timothy 6, 9 through 11. Uh, I guess I didn't go through that verse. First uh, Timothy 6, 9 through 11, it says, But they that will be rich will fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which, while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierce themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. See? He encourages Timothy, tell these rich folks that are so consumed with their money to instead pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, because that's what, where the real value is. But notice what he says, and he points out this trade-off. Some were covetous, and so they traded the faith to go get money. They erred from the faith. They sacrificed. They did not let God get in their way and hold them back. And they gave that up so that they could be financially well off. Because they loved money more. That's the example that Paul gives us. You see, there's a trade-off. There's a sacrifice that happens. When we make a decision to pursue something we think is valuable that is not aligned with what God thinks is valuable. And we might spend our entire lives seeking things that we think are of high value. But the, the, the foolishness of humanity and, and the, is that God wants to give us things that are of great value. He wants to give us things that are, that are highly esteemed. He wants to give us eternal treasures. He says, lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor doth, rust doth corrupt, where thieves do not break through nor, nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. God wants to lay up in store and wants us to lay up in store many wonderful things. In the form of spiritual blessings, in the, in the form of salvation, in the, in the form of, of the things that we've been talking about. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Those are the things that we should lay up for ourselves. And, and you ask yourself, it's like, well, how do I know where I'm aligned? Well, how do I know where my life is aligned? How can I, how can I determine this? Look at verse 21. Where your treasure is there your heart will be also. 
We can look at our lives and say, where's my heart? What is my heart really into? That's where my treasure is. And, and we can use that as a self-examination here. And so while the world tells us, don't let God hold you back, God gives us the true perspective we ought to have. Do not let the world hold you back from God's honor. That's the, that's the reality. That's what God wants to give us. Luke 14, 26 through 27, it says, If any man come to me and hate not his father, his mother, his wife, his children, his brethren, his sisters, yea, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. If we're not interested in giving up our desires and giving up our connections and giving up the things we love in order to pursue the love of God and his word, then we cannot be the disciples of Christ. Matthew 16, he says something similar. He says, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whosoever will save his life will lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake will find it. For what is a man profited if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? What a question. What have we really gained if we give up our, our own soul in pursuit of, of gaining all the things the world has to offer? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is nothing. You've gained nothing, and you've lost everything. And there's nothing we can give in exchange for our soul. For the Son of Man will come in His glory with the Father of His Father with His angels, and then He shall reward every man according to His works. Take note of that. Make sure our values we're seeing properly, the value of the world versus the value of God, and make sure our life and heart is aligned properly. Sometimes we might get upset because somebody tells us, hey, maybe that's not properly spiritually aligned, and we get, don't let yourself get upset about that. Just look at it honestly, be honest with yourself, and follow what the Scriptures has to say, and deny yourself. Give up your desires so that you can follow after, world, after, after what God wants us to have, after the, the godly things that God provides for us. Deny yourself so that you can be a disciple of Christ and, and that you will find your life. That's the thing. We get attached and we say, if I give this up, I'm going to lose part of myself. I'm going to lose part of my identity. I'm going to, I'm going to fail. I'm going to be, you know, worse off than I was if I, than, than when I had this. And that's not true. If we give up our life, we will find it. What a blessing is that? What a blessing. So what about this man Balaam as we think about this story and what Balak did and how he pressed him and, and, was, and how he wanted him to uh, come and curse the children of Israel? You know, in his covetousness, Balaam found a way to get around the Lord from holding him back. Revelation chapter 2, 14. And it's a very sad outcome for Balaam. He says, this is, in Reve- this, this is interesting. This is way after the fact. This is in Revelation, Jesus speaking to the churches, and now Balaam has become an example to them, a negative example. He tells here to the church, he says, I have a few things against you because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit fornication. The scriptures reveal to us that, Balak, uh, that Balaam's ultimate goal, what happened? He found a way to get around God from holding him back. And he taught Balak how they could, he could cause the children of Israel to fall, and that's exactly what happens. In about Numbers chapter 26, we read that the, the Moabite women... I think it's 25 or 26. The Moabites started to go and, and to entice them, and they started to fornicate with them and then invited them to their idol sacrifices, and, their, and they, then they just went right along with it. So they committed fornication. 
they ate things sacrificed to idols, and they became a stumbling block to the children of Israel, and God ended up destroying, I think about 24,000 people died. But that's because Balaam showed them what to do and how to harm the children of Israel and how to make them displeasing to God. That's the path he chose. The New Testament confirms this covetousness. In 2 Peter 2.15, it says this. It's, it's speaking of very evil people that give up on godliness and that they, they want to turn the godliness and, and the holiness of God into something lascivious to fulfill their own desires. He says, they have forsaken the right way. They're gone astray following, after, uh, following the way of Balaam, the son of Bosor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. So when we look at that story, the, the New Testament gives us pieces that we can look at that story through, these lenses, and say, Balaam was an evil man who taught Balak how to make the children of Israel fall because he loved the wages of unrighteousness. In Jude 1.11, it says, Woe to them! They have gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsaying of Cory. Balaam ran greedily after that error. And we see it in the time and time and time again. He tried to get God to change his mind to just let me curse these people so I can get this money. Quit holding me back. And he got his reward. Ultimately, God avenged his people against Midian. And we read in Numbers 31, verse 8, later on, it says, And they slew the kings of Midian, because, beside the rest of them that were slain, namely Evi, Remak, Zur, Hur, and Reba, five kings of Midian. Balaam also, the son of Baor, they slew with the sword. They went in and they slew these kings. Who's in the company of kings? Balaam. He got his high position. He got his money. But he lost his life because he disobeyed the commandments of God and helped the children of Israel to commit idolatry and fornication. His life was taken away when the time of judgment came. And the question is, what will we choose? What will we choose to root ourselves in? What kind of value system do we want to have? Because when the time of judgment comes, we'll lose our life if it's, if it's placed in worldly hopes. And nobody wants that. We want to live eternally with God. We want to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven, seeking faith, righteousness, meekness, t- patience, virtue, the things that God wants us to pursue. And we lay those things up in hopes of being able to experience the fullness of God's joy in, in heaven. That's what we want. That's what we ought to choose. But you have to ask yourself that. What, what will you choose in the way you live out your life? If you're here this morning and you feel like you want prayers, you want encouragement from the church, you want to, to make some changes in your life, it's time. Awake to righteousness, the Bible says. Don't let the world hold you back from pursuing godliness. We hope you enjoyed this teaching from God's Word. To receive new sermons each week, subscribe on Google Play Music, iTunes, Spotify, and like us on Facebook. Thanks for listening, and God bless.